when it comes to textile work, I feel like there's no real sustainability in putting more garments into the world because that is eventually going to be waste. But I think that there is a way to do it responsibly. I have seen in the past years companies that are developing, for example, like bricks from textile waste or even materials that can't substitute wood from textile waste. This is in a way accepting that the waste will happen, but then they are making something with this that can be 100% useful. From NYC by Design, this is The Mic, a podcast that offers an inside look into New York City's most creative minds. I'm your host, Debbie Millman. From projects to products, inspirations, and more, join us each month as I talk to members of New York City's design community about what makes design so outstanding. This season, we'll be talking to established and emerging designers to uncover how their creative worlds overlap. Today on The Mic, we're diving into the complicated and beautiful world of textiles. It is undeniable that the environmental impact of our creative endeavors is increasingly at the forefront of designers' minds, especially those who work with clothing and the fiber arts. According to the European Parliament, it is estimated that the fashion industry is responsible for 10% of global carbon emissions. More than international flights and maritime shipping combined. So how can textile designers push the boundaries of creativity while still approaching their work responsibly and sustainably? Today, we are speaking to Sarah Insikak of Le Reunion Studio and Maria Elena Pombo of Fragmentario, two designers who simultaneously utilize traditional and experimental approaches to working with textiles with a special focus on reducing waste and maintaining sustainable practices. Today, I'm happy to welcome my first guest, Sarah Insikak. Sarah is a Nigerian-American artist and designer living in the Hudson Valley of New York and working out of her Brooklyn studio. She is the founder and creative director of La Reunion, a women's wear brand that uses strictly dead stock, antique, and vintage fabrics from around the world to craft its signature clothing pieces. La Reunion draws from many influences, including the vibrant stories of the African diaspora, post-colonial art and photography, reclaimed beauty, identity, color, joy, and inviting oneself back to what's been central all along. These are also amongst the themes that she's applying to her fine art practice using applique and patchworking to create folkloric tapestries. Sarah, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. That's really special. Sarah, when did you begin to work with textiles and what was it that first drew you to the discipline? I can remember vividly my grandmother who immigrated to America just to help my mom take care of us when I was probably born up until the point of her passing when I was 13. But she taught me how to sew on a sewing machine. And I think I mostly hand sewed in that time of my life when I was around like eight or nine. But I think that was my first vivid memory of sewing is her teaching me on the machine. But I've always been drawn to textiles and to fashion to making things new again, specifically like using what I already had to create something that I maybe saw in a catalog, like a limited to catalog that came in the mail that I couldn't maybe afford the pieces, but wanted to try to see if I could make it myself. And it never worked. It was never <laughs> successful, but I think that I'm still using a lot of that ambition and curiosity now in my work that doesn't need to be about trends, but is more about telling stories and sharing my heritage as well as the rest of the diaspora with whoever's interested. You began working in fashion in 2016 after graduating with your master's in art therapy. I believe you didn't want to go back to school to get certified as you felt 22 was way too young to become a therapist. Were you planning on going back eventually? Yeah, I was thinking my 40s, which still seemed really young to me, would be a really nice time to 
use the wisdom of my 20s and 30s in life but beyond to help advise others but I didn't feel like I could graduate from college and go into some kind of crazy role where I would teach people how to be better when I myself am not sure who I am at all so yeah I thought that would be a nice career for me to revisit but who knows if I'm even going to be interested in it by then I just think it was a romanticizing of a detour and saying I'll get back to that but how often does that really happen do you see a through line now between your educational background in art therapy and your interest in environmentally mindful textile practices? Yes, I really do feel like I still apply everything that I studied because there is a lot of, for me at least, regenerative work in using remnants or using reclaimed materials, especially in the way that I am. It's called La Reunion for a lot of reasons, but I never really embraced my cultural heritage until beginning kind of like this detour from the path I was on and exploring my creative side and my interests as far as textile art and fashion. So when I started doing that, those stories for me were really important to share and that is therapeutic practice for me. And so I think on a large scale and applying it to myself, I'm not advising someone else on how to grow that sense of self or become more actualized, but I am feeling like I've become more actualized through this work. And maybe for others, it's done the same, but I'm not, can't speak for anyone else. (laughs) Your textile work spans garment making to tapestry-like wall hangings, which seems really a bit of an understatement. There's wall hangings as art. What connects your art visually is your use of patchwork and applique. Can you explain for those that aren't familiar with the term what dead stock fabric is? I think that there are a couple different definitions, but the way that it applies for me is I work in the garment district when it comes to making clothing. And I've worked for a lot of designers before getting to this point, and they've always had material that superseded what they needed. They've always had excess of something like many yards, many rolls, and then they end up calling that dead stock because they won't use that in a future collection. They deem it as irrelevant for themselves. And that's a thing in fashion that I think contributes to the waste that we discussed in the beginning, where it's 10%. It's insane to me how much of it goes disposed and unused. So they ended up, the ones that I've worked for in the past ended up selling me their dead stock, which is just like old unused remnants that they no longer see as useful for them and they sell it at a lower rate but I end up buying it in bulk and so it's like a very symbiotic relationship we have where I'm helping them clean up their trash to them it's a very useful resource for me it feels like there's very little footprint there and it helps spread that awareness about yeah what is dead stock and why is it important that we're tapping into what's already here versus making more Can you talk about why you've chosen to use antique and vintage fabric as well as the dead stock? I think that this has a lot to do with my personal preference on wanting to make heirloom pieces, but it's in the same breath as the dead stock, really, and it's all about being responsible. So I don't know if sustainability in fashion is really real as possible, but we can be responsible the way that we make things. And I think that using old things that are ripped or have holes in them or stains became one of my favorite practices because I could use my creative abilities on patchworking or applique, mending. I've done darning on garments for other stores before. And I think that whole world of mending, visible mending, is a different type of art that's wearable and practical that I think makes it an heirloom piece that you just want to keep seeing the life reimagined in the next wearer. So that's something that I value a lot in practice. Your work has been called a sartorial story of joyful liberation. And I love that. And I'm wondering if you can talk about what kinds of liberation stories you want to tell. I love that too. I think that's exactly the type of messaging I want in the world, my work to represent. And the main story that I began this whole journey with was the story of the Herero tribe of Namibia. These women, out of so many other tribes of Africa, the whole continent, 
was colonized mostly. And so it feels like who they were, who we were as people began to be not only stolen or destroyed in a way, but also told to us, like being told who we were meant to be as people. And this reclaims the stories that maybe were once westernized in a way that was never meant to happen. So when the Herero tribe was colonized by Germany, they tried to, or Namibia was colonized, they tried to wipe everyone out. So there was a genocide attempt on the Herero tribe and they survived. And so these dresses are an adaptation of the German women's dress that they used to wear. And it was way more ornate, way more untouchable for them. But it felt like such a cheeky nod to what these women and men tried to do to them. It was almost like, we survived you, and now we have our own way of celebrating that. And I made my own way of celebrating them throughout my dress. And I think that the story wasn't so well known before. And I think the Bringing these stories to the mainstream is really important. A lot of stories that we hear are very European or Western, but I want to modernize and celebrate more of our African stories that feel like they maybe got forgotten in all of the colonization that's been in the whole continent. So I've really enjoyed doing that. And I think there's so many more to tell that are coming in the season that I haven't shared, but I'm eager to share more. I am really eager to see it. I was so moved by how this tribe of women and men, as they recovered, created clothes that were more regal to really celebrate who they were. And I found that just incredibly moving and really see that in your work now. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. It feels like such a celebration. And I mean, it's like a perspective that they chose doesn't necessarily equate to what they went through. They could have chosen to be extremely pessimistic and totally just disparaged as people. But I think that's a sense of perseverance that I would like to see manifested in more people of color, women of color, men of color, anyone gender identified, like no matter who you are, to understand that we have value and we can overcome the things that kind of say that we don't basically. So I hope it's been giving that message. Talk a little bit about your line. Your women's wear brand is called La Reunion. And I'd love to know a little bit more about the backstory of the name and where you envision the brand going. It's an interesting journey I took when I was beginning this whole project. It was more of like my research as someone who studies where I come from, but the whole diaspora, wondering about colonization and what countries have already been colonized and those that have become liberated since colonization and those that have not. And I thought about La Reunion, this tiny little territory still owned by France. They found this way of celebrating their indigenous people. And I think that's really special. And one of the rare things that came out of them being colonized, it's so rare for a territory or a country to still be able to celebrate the heart of who they are and not have had that whitewashed out in a way. When I was reading about La Reunion, I just became immersed and felt like this was the kind of energy that I wanted to see celebrated or talked about more. People that were just so true to who they were even after being told like what they should be. And there is a lot of change that has happened on that island and a lot of just westernization that has still happened. But I do feel like it's being so well preserved and the original people are being honored. The indigenous people are being celebrated still. And so it's not meant to be a place that I just think that it has a lot more joy, like I guess a lot more preservation than others that have had to rebuild from what was totally annihilated, which are both amazing stories. But I thought that this one stood out in a way. And so it made me like excited about the idea of returning to myself when celebrating my heritage with the name Reunion. And so it just made sense. And yeah, there are so many beautiful things about the island, like visually, it's just wonderful. And I think just sharing about that place in general was cool for me in the beginning, but it just symbolizes a lot more than just the place now for me. And the idea of just revisiting what's central to you, whether or not the world thinks that it's a value. You have both an art practice and the women's wear brand. Where do you see these intersecting and growing as you continue to evolve? 
This is such a good question. It's something I think about a lot because my art practice is definitely so important to me. And I think it's grown a lot in the last year, but having the two things side by side feels, I don't know, almost competing for me as far as my energy and time. So I'm not really sure what's going to happen, but I think I'd like to see the art practice keep going maybe a little bit away from the brand and have its own life and the brand have its own life as well, whether or not I'm as involved with it in the future as I am now. But with my art practice, I'd like to keep doing what I'm doing with Remnants and maybe even on a larger scale with more brands and designers that have so much waste and that would like to work together on making art and like making beautiful things for the world and editorial work that could be worn or not or just used as art in a home. I think that it's really important that larger companies that can create at mass are also adapting these practices because I'm not someone that can contribute to the waste in the same way that they can. But if they're thinking about how to recycle and responsibly use what they're making, like thinking about volume when they're deciding on how much fabric to even begin with for production, there's so many ideas that I think I'd like to share with larger companies than mine and bring these, I bring this whole picture that I've curated over the years with my company and my art practice to them and say, how can we keep doing this? And how can I teach someone else how to make art out of your stuff? Or how can we create a through line to the rest of the public and these high-end brands that are beautiful and amazing and people want to help use their waste, but just don't have the access or the connection or the resource to get to them. So I'd like to kind of liaison in a way or I'd like to just be someone who shows what's possible and then continues that does that make sense there's a lot absolutely absolutely thank you for doing this work Sarah I want to thank you so much for joining me today here on the mic and I'd love for you to stick around I'd love to have you join me again after I chat with Maria Elena Pombo so we can all talk together yes I would love to I am now joined by Maria Elena Pombo. Working under the moniker Fragmentario, Maria Elena Pombo is a Venezuelan interdisciplinary artist based in New York City. Her research-based practice is centered around participatory actions. She transforms and recontextualizes ubiquitous materials through public art, conceptual installations, sculptures, videos, and performances that seek to dismantle hegemonic narratives, and create alternative ones. Maria Elena is faculty at Parsons School of Design and has worked as a guest lecturer at Brooklyn Botanical Garden and other traditional and unorthodox spaces internationally. I am now joined by Maria Elena Pombo, who joins us from Venezuela. Maria Elena, welcome. Hi, Debbie. I'm so happy to be here today. Maria Elena, I would love to begin by discussing avocados. You have done extensive research and creative iterations on utilizing avocado seeds as natural dye, which has culminated in two ongoing projects. The Avocati Project was your initial exploration of working with avocado seeds. So first question, why avocados? Many years ago, this was very like 2013, and I had just graduated from fashion design at Parsons, and I was helping my my boyfriend at the time. We're still together with a project, and he told me about he he grew up in an area where there's like Amish people, and he told me about the Amish dyeing textiles with onion skins and not shells. And I started researching about this, and then learning that you could also use avocado seeds to to learn to dye textiles. I had in my house in Venezuela where I'm from, we had an avocado tree and I never knew about this. I never had even learned about natural dyes. And I started researching then a lot about natural dyes and the different plants that can be used to dye textiles. And for me, like avocado seeds were like perfect combination in the sense that they are a plant that I have a connection to. Just not because I had them in my house, but it is a plant that Latin Americans do have a special connection with. I could get the seeds because they are trash and not just I'm taking something out of a landfill, but I can create connections with people. Like I get them from like restaurant workers. I'm a very shy person and I 
not anymore. And, but I think this has helped actually, because I have to go talk to people. So it gives like this other connection that like I can meet people. And then also like they are an incredibly versatile material, like that I have been using. Yes. As you said, as, as a dye for textiles, but I have done three years, other experiments, like making leather out of them, plastic braids, using them as a clay and even like fueling a car from avocado seed oil. So it is like a perfect material for me that from a formal perspective, it works. And from a story in material perspective as well. What color do avocado seeds produce when you use them to make a dye? It depends on, on the water that you use to boil the seeds and also on the soil itself where the avocado seeds grow. For the most part, it, they have like a pinkish color. But depending on the on the soil where the plant grew, like if the soil is very dry, it's going to be like a more magenta color. And likewise, depending on the water, if the water has many minerals, it's going to be also like a more magenta color. If the water is more acidic, it's going to be more towards yellow. If the water has like a high content of iron, it's going to be more towards like purple. So it is quite diverse. And I don't know if we're going there, but I actually had a project once collecting water from around the world to, to study this. That's incredible. In terms of the popularity of avocados with heightened demand it brings sustainability issues and complications can you speak to this a little bit how much should we be concerned about the popularity of avocados and the way that they're consumed if, if you read the statement of that first product avocado the output was a small capsule collection like this was not to be produced because I have a background in fashion, so when I approached this product, it was always, like, this is an output, but this is not going to be produced. I speak about that, and I don't speak about it, like, super directly, and there's cultural reasons because of that. In the United States, people are very direct in the way they communicate. I think I come from a culture in which we speak a lot more with nuance, but I speak about, and this is from a product from 2017, and I speak about how there's, like, a black market. It's even more beneficial economically to have a black market of avocados and drugs at this point. I don't want to be super explicit about this because I don't want to be on the list of drug dealers that are now dealing avocados. And as like an anti-avocado consumer spokesperson, for me, like I am not proposing people to eat avocados. Like I myself barely consume avocados in, in New York City where I live for two simple reasons. It's Yes, of course, it's not sustainable, but it's also like they're quite expensive and they're not good. When you grow up in a tropical place where you have like really good fruits, this is just not attractive. So I barely even consume this fruit. But I think that the moment that I would demonize avocados and they have become demonized like in the past maybe three, four years, everyone seems to have watched this show Rotten, but just the avocado episode. And the whole food system is broken. And I think our whole life system, like the, there's two right now, avocados and fashion. No one is thinking about like concrete, for example, cement. Those also are extremely polluting. Animal agriculture is super polluting. So I think that we as a whole have to think about all the systems because it's not so easy that all oh, people are buying many dresses and avocados. It's, we have a system in place right now in, in our way that we're living our lives. Like, it's not very coherent. Yeah, I know that in the United States, there's a lot of controversy around how much water it takes just to be able to grow almonds. So I think this is a fairly global concern that has far-reaching tentacles. I want to talk about the concept of avocado seed dye that you took even further in your second avocado project, Rosa Turaceo. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you evolved and expanded your ideas of dye? So when I did avocado in, in 2017, and avocado, that was the, it's a word from Nahuatl, and it was one of the indigenous languages of Mexico. And I presented that small collection in Paris or Fashion Week. And the two previous months, I did an avocado tour, and I was doing different workshops, teaching people how to dye flowers with avocado seeds around Europe, in Germany, Italy, Spain, and in every place, the color was a little bit different because of the water. And I already knew this and I had already studied it, but something about doing it week after week collectively made me want to explore this more in the future. The following year, I couldn't leave the United States because like I had applied for a green card and I couldn't leave. So I thought I had asked in 2017 people to save avocado seeds for me in different places in Europe, a lot of family and friends from the Venezuelan diaspora or 7 million Venezuelans have left in the past 10 years or so, it's almost like 20% of the population. So 
I have friends and family everywhere. So just as I had asked them to save our parasites for me for these workshops, I asked them to send water from the place where they live. The intention was originally to map the Venezuelan diaspora with these different colors. I was doing a lot of workshops at the time in New York City with non-Venezuelans and Venezuela, whomever. There, there was not a nationality requirement. So people started to find out and bringing me water. And it grew as a more collective, non-nationality-wise project in which I was using water from different places around the world to dye these textiles in like different colors. And with these ideas, also like a capsule collection, but then also a series of installations and performances in a place now that is closed in Brooklyn called ADO and also in a venue called Jan Motoseika in Osaka. After diving deep into a subject and covering and uncovering new findings, most academics and scholars will publish a paper or write a book. However, the way you present your explorations and materiality is often in the form of exhibitions, performances, or a clothing collection. And I'm wondering if you can talk about what shaped your approach to how you share the findings of your research. It, it tends to be a little bit hard because for me, I think I'm thinking of like the concept at large and that is okay with me. But of course, people are not inside my brain, right? Like we, we are not inside each other's brains. So I have always to think, okay, how can I put this out in the world? And it's always difficult. I think the initial part of the way that I work is always very research driven and there's not enough space for spontaneity. But then in the moment that I'm actually producing things, I think, okay, I already have like my harvest of like my materials and my research and the things that I want to do. And there is a little bit of a more intuitive process that I'm not designing these pieces beforehand or even the installations. I, I had these materials and then I am in the space. I am with the mannequin and then these things come out. So th there is this very intense product at first that is very controlled. And then towards the end, it just becomes a, a little bit more, more open. So your performances tend to be more improvisational? Yeah. And I have done both like just one time me and it was an experiment and I did this in Japan and it was more like a performing of the process itself. And then one in, in Brooklyn that it was with a group of people, it, I was not performing and it was completely spontaneous. But the, these people I knew, they, they could work well with each other, similar to how if you're going to make a salad with organic vegetables, that they were grown in a great soil and everything, no matter what happens, it's going to be good. And we had gone through motions of like certain processes that we, we had in place, certain things that they could interact with. And it ended up working very, very well because it was very natural. What are some of the messages that you're sharing during these or sharing or creating during these creative culminations? I think something for me important is trying to create an identity beyond stereotypes. And when I started to discover, to, to learn about like botanical dyes and especially avocados, many of these plants besides avocados obviously are originally from Latin America. And I think there is such a heavy portrayal of Latin America, of what it's supposed to be Latin America. And I think it's similar to what Sarah was sharing before. And I don't really agree. These are not things that we ourselves decided. And I never felt very connected with a lot of the portrayals of how you're supposed to be a Latina, like some fancy Latina with some, you know, want to go into it. And, and I didn't really saw myself, but I did feel very Latin American and very Venezuelan and very Caribbean and but I just couldn't really put it into words what it meant for me and for me going into some more like the earth or materials I think it's a way that I can do it and that I don't feel I have to say it but it is there is something strange that for example the people that give me avocados it's most of them are restaurant workers with no education most of them are from Mexico or from South America I don't have to tell them what I'm doing and they understand it and that's why they want to participate they tell me, oh, I, I'm so happy we're doing this together and we're sharing our culture. And I didn't have to explain it to them. And I find that for Americans or Europeans, I do have to explain it. And this is not a criticism. It's again, that, that it's like different ways of communicating and thinking that m maybe it's not evident because also the avocado, for example, has become very California and Australia identity in people's like collective imagination. People think of things maybe in, in this other way. So I, I think for me, it's a way of creating identity in a different way. Also creating things together, that something can have many layers that there's people can go into it and see all like the geopolitic implications of avocado consumption. But maybe for 
the people that are giving me the seeds, they're just thinking, oh, I, I knew it's back home and I knew it again now. So th there's like different ways that people can access the work. Maria Elena, do you see your work as a form of advocacy? In a way, yes, but I think with this advocacy and like activists, it's always complicated because it's very hard to be what you that If you say that you're something, it's then you really have to prove it all the time. And I, I think maybe, but in a way that it's like soft power or something like this. Thank you so much for doing this really important work. I'd like to bring back Sarah now so we can all chat together about sustainability and our responsibility as artists and designers to the earth. Sarah, welcome back. Sustainability is the ultimate buzzword in design right now. We seem to be encountering it in almost every discipline that exists. What does that term mean to both of you in regards to the textile and garment industry? Sarah, do you want to go first? I really struggle with this word because it's not necessarily applicable to making anything or putting anything into the world. To be sustainable is to not add anything. And I think that there is a way to take waste that's already been deemed as waste, like Maria Elena's doing, and use it like trash avocado pits that would literally only ever be used for anything but trash otherwise, and make something with that. But I think when it comes to textile work, I don't know, like I feel like there's no real sustainability in putting more garments into the world because that is eventually going to be waste. But I think that there is a way to do it responsibly. So we're just trying to prolong the lifespan of a garment and make it cyclical. So if someone is to buy this and wear this for a long time, it's mendable. The quality of it from the beginning isn't so poor that it wasn't even able to mend. It's at the state of being so high quality that we can wear it for years and then repair it and then someone else can repair it. And that's definitely an educational practice with our companies, both of us. I feel like education is a huge part of it because it's not in our society to think about reuse. And I think that is really the goal. I don't know if anything is sustainable but reuse. So to make things, maybe not, but I think to teach others how to keep it going and close our own circle on waste using scraps for my art, I think of that as maybe sustainable, but I'm still making things. So I'm just trying to be more critical on the use of that term that fast fashion companies have turned into a marketing strategy. Maria Elena, what about you? How do you feel about the word sustainability in regards to how it's used in the textile and garment and even artistic industries? It's definitely a word that has lost any meaning, right? Because People are not being specific about how it's being sustainable, right? Is it using less water? Is it using materials that are local? And I think, it's, I don't know. And I think for me as a Venezuelan, I really see it hand in hand with like ethical treatment of workers. And I, I think sometimes in the global north, it's a little bit more specialized. So these are like different things. I, I don't know. I think it's very complicated, but very simple because at the end of the day, if you see like the levels of consumption in the global north for clothes and to a point I am part of that because I live in New York City, but the average number of clothes a person buys, I think in 2014, it was like 70 garments a year. This is not counting shoes or anything. That's a lot. That's one and a half per week. It doesn't matter if things are made by sustainable fairies with natural dyes, dead stock, whatever. That's not sustainable. So I think that there's a little power that an agency that consumers themselves have to accept. It's okay, maybe Sarah and H&M and all these like fashion nova are like pushing things, but it is like our responsibility to, are we going to buy this or not? And maybe sometimes it's okay if people buy from these places, if it's like something that you really think about, you're going to wear, that it's like different quality. I have dresses that I bought from Sarah when I was like 20 years old. I'm 34. I still have them. If someone to say that's not sustainable, that's not true. Like I've had this for 14 years and I still wear it. It's not the definition we have. So I think there's something there that if we are really are going to use things and if we accept like our own power and responsibility. You know, one of the things that I'm always grappling with is the idea of planned or forced obsolescence. And we see that most egregiously in the tech industry 
and in fashion, where just by the sheer virtue of having seasons, we are then judging what we own in relation to what is being told is in or out or is something that we should save or get rid of. How do we begin to combat, if at all, is that even a possibility to begin to combat how we think about how often we are expected to get new things in order to be, quote unquote, stylish? Yeah, I think this is really important because the fashion industry is saying you need to be buying clothes this often to keep up with the status quo. And it's not wrong for anyone to want to be up to speed or to feel like they're not dressing to a certain standard in society because of what they're being told by the media. I think that's the big scam of it all because personal style and trends are two different things. And I think working towards having personal style that is pretty consistent throughout the year. It's just different layers, different textiles based off of the temperature, the climate that you live, and knowing what you like. That's not really being championed anymore, and it's not profitable for anyone to try to say, this is how you should think about your closet. It would lead to so many less sales from the fast fashion people, for the fast fashion people, and that's how they survive. And it's really bleak when you think about it that way. But I think that there is some positive change happening Ever since 2020, I think a lot of brands realized that they couldn't keep up with the fashion calendar and that that was a big awakening in the luxury fashion sphere. We saw a lot of companies bold or a lot of companies come out about how much waste that they really were making. And we realized it because they weren't selling as much. No one really wanted to spend millions and millions of dollars on clothing a year when they realized how much pain that the planet was in. And we had a moment of really examining that because we were stuck at home. So I think the accountability started happening. One brand that comes to mind when I think about this as a positive change and maybe someone who's like a forefront thinker, forward thinker about this is Wells Bonner because they do, I think they do two shows a year instead of four, which is for someone on that scale is pretty rare. And it, for me, was really encouraging to see that someone was basing their whole model off a more thoughtful approach. And you did build a sense of anticipation to see what they were going to do next because you knew they had way more time. It was more thoughtful. It wasn't anything based off of what other brands were doing. And I think that's something more people should maybe adopt if they can. I know that it's hard to keep stay afloat as a company as well, but we don't really operate on fashion calendar. We showed it market week for spring, summer 2023, and we'd probably just do it once a year. We're at a smaller scale anyway, but I think sharing that is important so people see we're not running to keep up with the other brands. We're just doing what works for us and keeping our production very low. So literally at demand, not anything more. Maria Elena, do you have thoughts on this subject and how your work intersects with some of these issues? I think something that has been interesting for me, and it's about like people's, the way that people interact with clothes and everything, but I have seen in the past years companies that are developing, for example, like bricks from textile waste or even materials that can't substitute wood from textile waste. And this is in a way accepting that the waste will happen, but then they are making something with this that can be 100% useful because I do think that clothes do have a moment that they are dead, just as we people and anything that, that is alive. And as much as I am an advocate and I myself, I'm preserving a lot of my, my clothes and taking care of them, there is a point that they have to have an ex-life. And I think there, there is something interesting there that when, when different industries start to interact with each other and then finding solutions like, okay, we can substitute maybe construction materials with these or wood with these and then prevent deforestation. So I, I think the future will be a little bit more of this further intersection between industries. It's interesting. I recently read that places like Goodwill and Housing Works and the Salvation Army are getting record numbers of donations. That's the good news. The bad news is that there's so many donations that they can't even handle what they're getting. Why do you think that people are replenishing so much of their wardrobe while giving so much away? 
I think they're just buying, not thinking very much. And like, I even know people that will just throw the clothes in the garbage. And it's similar to what Sarah was saying, that there is no, perhaps like a celebration of like personal style and like repeating the things. That is now the challenge, right? Like how designers, artists, and the, the media create this. And it's not hard, but it, sorry, it's not easy, but it, it's not hard. And I see... And it's maybe a silly example, but I remember being in Venezuela as like a teenager and seeing the Olsen twins or like anyone in New York City in photos walking around with a Starbucks cup in the hand. And I thought that was so chic, having this thing. And now, of course, I do that. And I think this is so horrible and it's so wasteful. And like, we should create some of the Kardashians. They should be sitting in coffee shops, sitting down and drinking these things. Some people, that can be the aspiration. This very powerful figures, just so they are repeating clothes. I, I don't know, just it has to be hand in hand with m many industries, I think. There's a real tension between affordable clothing and waste. And the, on one hand, selling a dress online for $7 and free shipping might be really beneficial to some people that do have very limited funds. On the other hand, in order to make that $7 dress, you are, I think, pretty likely having some practices in making those clothing, those pieces of clothing that are questionable. How can we address this tension? How can we have clothes that are affordable for people that don't in any way marginalize or discriminate or abuse the people that are making them? And this is a really another really important question for me as someone who makes clothes. Um, and I love what we were able to accomplish with my company. We basically have this one factory we work with and they're like family for us. We have a very collaborative relationship where they tell us what they need to make in order for it to make sense financially for them. And they know that we're able to keep bringing in orders that would keep them sustained for the month. And so it, it makes sense for us to work in the way that we do. It doesn't put them out as far as like us not being able to pay because we overproduced or they had a bunch of extra material because we weren't smart about our margins and we didn't think about our yield for fabric. It's all very thought about before we even began. And they trust us. It just feels like we really established something that I never had seen in the fast fashion space. And I think if we could share what we're doing, I know it doesn't make as much money for us because we pay them a lot. It's hard to make clothes. It's a beautiful art practice. And I think that's another education side that me and both Marielena and I both have our practices of people. This takes time and it's a very valued skill. It's not, I think that's a, an issue in our society is seeing sweatshops or garment workers as people that don't have like the skill level as maybe artists or like anyone who does something on a grand scale but they are doing things on a grand scale like clothing is so important and I think if we valued it at that place we would be having a whole different conversation about consumption and people would understand the pricing being higher because they would really get the why behind that. And I started making clothes at a really young age, so I always knew why it would need to cost what it does. It's, it was always hard for me, and I have never, even though I've been doing it for over 20 years, it's not become easier for me. So it's just a skill. And I think that if we could educate on that front, and also, I like like you were saying, Marielena, if we could also just tell people the imagery they're seeing it's not social media is not equated to reality you're seeing someone wear a different outfit every day of the year but that's not realistic or sustainable and i think if companies didn't market life that way if people didn't feel the pull to keep up with that the fast fashion crisis wouldn't be going on and, and i don't shame anyone for participating in that because it's sometimes the only way that they can look presentable in their own mind to go to an interview or to go to work. I think that if we just stop shaming around fast fashion and start educating, we could see a slight shift and maybe a butterfly effect. Maria Elena, last word with you. I wonder to a point, there, there's a lot of foods that you know, we have access to in supermarkets that are industries that, are, that receive subsidizes from the government to make them 
for example, like milk. It doesn't make any sense realistically that all the plant milks are more expensive than cow. Of course, the cow is re requiring more resources. And there's just reasons about they are receiving subsidies from the government. So I, I wonder if there's like a point that we have to maybe think, okay, maybe the government, but I don't know, this sounds maybe like a nightmare that then the government is involved with the companies that are making our clothes. Maybe that's not it. But I think that we are like in a pivotal moment, like after 2020, that a society, we are rethinking everything, right? Like how we are engaging with like our work, like work balance. Are we going to go to an office or not? What are we going to wear? Even like what people are wearing. So I think it is a moment that we have to have like our eyes open and our minds open because it's like time will tell and we might have ideas of like how it can be. But at the end, also people, as societies, they start to give the answers of how this will shift. Thank you both so much for really enlightening us as to how we can think about textile, how we can rethink our dependence on fast fashion and how we can recraft the world to make it for lack of a better word, more sustainable for everyone. I'd like to thank everyone for listening and joining us today on NYC by Designs the Mic. And thank you again to our guests, Sarah Insikak and Maria Elena Pombo, for sharing their insights about the worlds of art and design and textile. Join me next month to talk even more design on the mic. Follow at NYC by Design on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And subscribe to the newsletter for the latest in New York City design. Special thanks to Maya Bayram and Cecilia Vidal of the NYC by Design team and the Sandow Design Group podcast design team, Hannah Vitti, Wise Grazette, and Samantha Sager. Thank you for listening. And now to close the episode, let's hear a short live on the bench interview that was recorded at Spiral of Life an adaptive seating installation in the Dumbo waterfront designed by Kiki Kortakova, made from Caesar stone quartz in celebration of this special collaboration between NYC by design and Caesar stone. I sat down with local creatives at the installation site to explore how nature inspires their work. Now let's listen to my conversation with the architect Ramona Albert to explore how nature influenced her passion for sustainable design. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman, and I'm here at the Brooklyn Waterfront, sitting on Kiki Kudakova's marvelous sculpture, Spiral of Life. And I'm being joined by Ramona Albert. Ramona has her own studio, Ramona Albert Design and Architecture Studio. Welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. This is fun. Your work is highly influenced by nature. Talk yeah. about how you integrate themes of nature into your work. So, so this is actually a very personal thing to me because um, so I'm, I was born in Romania, in Transylvania, in the, in the mountains. And so when I was little, I spent all my time in, in the woods with my grandparents. So it was something very, very inspiring to me. You know, I mean, I cannot, I don't think I can express how much time I spent in the forest, you know, almost all the time. So being with the natural environment and being in nature all the time kind of affected my, my upbringing in a way and especially being with my grandparents kind of foraging and trying to understand, you know, how the patterns of nature, something which we don't do much anymore, you know, especially living in the city. And so that stayed with me for a long time and not just in the sense of like sustainability, but also in the sense of, of like kind of understanding nature and understanding its pattern, understanding why the forms are the way they are. And that just fascinates me, you know, so it's really why, to be honest, you know, it's very, very simple. <laughs> what made you decide to choose New York City to make your home and your practice? Well, I, I don't know, I was, I was always drawn to New York because, because of its, um, you know, because it's so, amazingly challenging and it's so um, cosmopolitan. I mean, it's one of the coolest cities. It is the coolest cities in, in the world, you know? So in terms of design, I, I love being here. So I always knew that I kind of wanted to be here. And so I came 
you know, directly to New York after grad school. So it wasn't it wasn't a question. It was almost like I want to go there. You Just know? Yes, yeah, exactly. What is your favorite public space in New York City and why? So, you know, the space that I like the most, it's very small. It's it's a uh, it's on 53rd Street. I think it's called Paley Square. It's the, the waterfall. And and the reason why it's because it's unexpected, mm -hmm. you know, and I and I think that having those little spaces that are unexpected creates such beauty and joy, you know, and I, and I love it. Plus the water is so soothing. It's, yeah. it's amazing. It's, so, a, yeah. it's a wonderful sound. It's a wonderful yeah. environment. I remember the first time I saw it decades ago, I was just enchanted by its beauty. Exactly. Yeah, me too. It's just cool. It's a nice place. Given your interest in nature, how does New York City figure into the way in which you design? Does does the nature of New York City impact how you work? So that's that's actually a funny question. So so I um, I like New York City because of these unexpected moments, right? And the constant kind of change. So you're always you know you always have to shift and kind of change your viewpoint and adapt. So so we have to be extremely adaptable to live in New York City, right? It's it's not something that happens when you live outside of. The, outside of the city. So if you think about it that way, it's actually totally related to the natural world in a different way, right? Oh, so absolutely. that's to me that's how I would relate it to New York in a way, right? That's the adaptability. Inside or outside, rural or urban, what is your favorite place to connect in New York City? You know, I again this is this is a, a hard question. Um, because because I find I love to meet people and to connect with people that are different, to learn from them. I always like to learn from other people, right? And so places where I meet people that are different is, for example, like going to Soul Cycle or going to the gym. This is odd, but there's a lot of people that are like you, but are different in many ways. And so it's kind of fascinating to do that, you know, that's, but otherwise it's, it's very hard because I'm, it could happen anywhere, you know? It's not a prescribed place to be, right? So Anything can and will happen in yeah, New York I know. City. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Ramona, one, one last question. One word that you would use to describe the spiral of life that we're sitting on right now? I would say fun. Fun? Yes. Fun indeed. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Debbie.